book of Matthew. Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 23, so I'd like to encourage you to open up to your Bible there. If you have your Bible with you, or if you like to use it, your phone, then you can turn your phone on there to Matthew chapter 23. And uh, one of the things we see in the book of Matthew is we see this incredible symmetry. And hopefully I can do a little bit of fairness to that, addressing what we're looking at today in Matthew 23. But uh, real quick, before I go into that, I want to talk to you about something that's real important to me uh, that I, I think is really uh, significant, important for us as a church. One, one thing is this, is that, uh, I, I, you know, I, I don't know about you, but, but I need God's grace. I do. I do. I, I, I need God's grace. And not like I needed it when I first became a Christian. I need God's grace as much today as I've ever needed it. I do. And, uh, and if you have any kind of brokenness in your life, if you have ever, uh, have ever gone through something that feels like spiritual moral failure, you know, the, the wonderful, wonderful news is that in Christ, in Christ, uh, there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation for you or for me. Uh, that in Christ, uh, that we are loved and no one can ever, uh, and nothing can ever separate us from God's love. And, and in Christ, we are a new creation. We are a new creation. All things are, are new. And, uh, and there are all these wonderful things. And, and there's more to it than that, that inside of you and inside of me, that in Christ, God is doing a good work. He's doing a good work in you. He's doing a good work in me. And it's a work that he will never give up on, that he's going to continue with uh, until Christ comes again. And so God is doing this in our lives. And that's something I really want us to grow in, our understanding, our appreciation of that. The other thing that I really want for us is that, that I think that people, people desperately, we, when I say people, I'm talking about you and I'm talking about me. We really need to understand and experience the fullness and the richness of God's grace. I really believe that. But the other thing that we need is we need, we, we need yeah, I, I, obviously we need the wisdom of God's word. I believe that with all my heart. But the other thing that we need, and this is something that is huge in our culture today, is we need the kind of rich uh, fellowship and connection that the Bible talks about. We need uh, that, that, that in the scriptures, that our world today is so different from what it was like 2,000 years ago. You know, 2,000 years ago, you may never, most of your life was spent probably within a day's walk of where you were born. Uh, you may make an occasional journey if you grew up in Israel. If you grew up in Galilee, you might make the occasional journey down to Jerusalem once a year. But, but for the most part, your life was lived within probably maybe 5 to 10 miles, maybe 20 miles of where you could walk in a day. And, and, and so with that, in a very simpler time, in a very simpler place, there was a more natural connection with people. And today, we are speeding uh, over 20 miles in 20 minutes or less, depending upon how fast we're driving. Uh, and we are working in places that are far from where we live and where we buy our groceries and our neighbors. And sometimes we don't even know our next-door neighbor. We don't even know the people who live across the street from us. And, and, and so what we've done is we've become very, very, very good at skimming in relationships. And, uh, and, and we have friends, we have friends on Facebook, but do we have friends that we can open up with and talk with them uh, about, um, you know, the hardest things in our lives, the greatest joys in our lives? 
And so one of the things that, that I see when I read through the New Testament is I see this kind of rich interaction and fellowship that the early church had that I think God wants us to have as well. And so this year we're going to do a little experiment. And what we're going to be doing is, is this year we're going to be doing a number of after-church potlucks and barbecues, okay? First of all, we're going to do this because I enjoy food, okay? Uh, but also, you know, the, it's interesting when you read through the New Testament, when you read through like the Gospels, how many times Jesus is interacting with people over a meal? I mean, it's like when you read through the Gospels, you'll just read it that he's always having a meal with people. It's like, you know, he goes to Matthew's house, Matthew's party, and, and they're having a big party, and there's all the tax collectors and the sinners, and, and they're just enjoying having, eating together, hanging out together. And that's the way Jesus was, is he, he hung out with all kinds of people. And, and, um, and, and uh, so we see it in the scriptures. And what the Bible says in Acts chapter 2 is that they were continually uh, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and to prayer. But for them, eating together was as important as being in the Word together, being in prayer together. And so what we're going to do next week is we're going to have a potluck immediately after church. There's a little sign-up sheet. Uh, at the back as you as you leave today, but I'd like to encourage everybody who can uh, to stick around after church. Bring whatever it is you're supposed to bring. I don't know. However, Jen's got it organized on the sheet. Bring whatever you're supposed to bring, enough for yourself and someone else that, that you can share. And what we want to do is just hang out together a little bit after church and just build work on not skimming in relationship, but actually connecting with people. So, just want to bring that up to you. Uh, and, and so uh, next week, uh, we'll be doing that. Um, uh, there's a, a woman, we'll just say her name is Amanda. Uh, Amanda, a young woman, she grew up in a home where her parents were very, very religious. Uh, she, they were in church every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening, every Wednesday evening. Uh, in her church, uh, for women, wearing makeup was frowned upon. It kind of felt like for Amanda that the people of her church were allergic Allergic to smiling, uh, allergic to laughing, allergic to having fun. Uh, they definitely frowned on dancing. Uh, it was considered a sin. Uh, in her church, you had to be very careful about the kind of clothes you wore and the kind of people you were friends with. If you were friends with the wrong people, well, then you were ostracized. Uh, the people were, were very concerned about not being too worldly, okay? Uh, for her, religion felt suffocating. It just felt suffocating. It, it felt like it was mostly about rules and what the church was against. It felt oppressive. It felt abusive. Uh, when Amanda finally left home, she left the church. She left the church. She wanted to be free of the toxicity of, of graceless, joyless, lifeless religion. But instead of feeling free, she just felt guilty, empty, and lonely. Now that kind of experience is not unusual for a lot of people who've grown up going to church. And the reason it's not unusual is because all of us are sinners. There is no perfect church. We understand that. There's no perfect pastor. We understand that. Uh, 
But sometimes the way we do church, if we're not careful, uh, we can bring into it a kind of lifelessness and a joylessness that I think that, that is very different from what God intended. Now, for me, when I grew up going to church, my life was a little bit different. My church was a little bit different. I grew up with a pastor who I knew really cared about me. I knew loved me. Uh, he, he knew the scriptures, and, and he was passionate in preaching the word of God. But there were, uh, the overall church culture was not as toxic as Amanda's church culture. But there were definitely people in my church growing up that I felt like at times were toxic. You understand what I'm saying here? Is that it wasn't the prevailing culture of the whole church. It just seemed to be a prevailing um, personality in some people. But what I'm seeing uh, in my own life is that I'm seeing that not just that, that there are some people who grow up in toxic churches. And what I'm seeing is that there are some people who grow up in maybe a, a, a fairly healthy church, but with some toxic people. But what I'm seeing in my life is I'm seeing a measure of toxicity that I have to deal with on a weekly basis. You see, what I see in myself is I, and, and I've talked a little bit, and I think y'all know this, that I, I, I'm pretty, I think I've been pretty open about this, is that for me, preaching is hard. It's a struggle. And, and, and when I say it's a struggle, I'm not saying it's not something I don't, um, that I don't rejoice in, that I don't find joy in, that I don't love doing. I'm not saying that at all. Any more than sometimes being a parent feels like a struggle. You understand what I'm saying? Is it being a pastor is, yeah, it's a struggle, like being a parent is a struggle, but it's not a struggle that I resent or that I wished I didn't have. But the reason for me that being a pastor and preaching the Word of God is a struggle is because there's a struggle that's going on inside of my heart. Is there's a struggle between, between Jesus and there's a struggle between the Pharisee within. You follow what I'm saying here? Now, now some of you, you, maybe you don't know what a Pharisee is, and maybe that's something that's new to you, or, or maybe you're, you've heard of it, but you're not really sure what it was about. But the Pharisees were a religious group in Jesus' day who prided themselves in their spiritual purity, who prided themselves in separating themselves from anything that they felt like was sinful. And so what they did is they came up with a list of 613 laws, rules, that you had to obey. In fact, if you go to, oh, this is, if, if you go to Israel today, it's really interesting. Uh, if you go to Israel, I, I remember I was, when I was in Israel a few years ago, when, when I was there, I went into a restroom, and, and, and they had a sign up on the, the wall that said that using this restroom was... Uh, the cause of, uh, 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 of an abomination. Meaning that because I used that restroom, someone was going to have to clean it on the Sabbath. And that using it on the Sabbath was an abomination. But they still have the restroom there. Okay? Why? Because they, they have tourists and they have a culture and they've got to make money, right? But it's an abomination to use it. All right? But, but uh, you know, there's this, this they, they were all about the rules. All about the rules. And, um, and what I've seen in myself is that sometimes there can be an internal, uh, this internal 
Pharisee that I'm, I'm struggling with. And, and, and uh, part of the reason why I'm bringing this up is that, that, that I think that, that, well, you know what, let's just dive into the Word of God. Can we do this? Because what Matthew, what, 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 what Jesus does in, in Matthew chapter 23 is he's addressing some Pharisees. And I think understanding a little bit of the context, the ancient context, but also the modern context, is very important for us to wrestle with this and see how it applies to our lives today. Matthew chapter 23. And uh, in Matthew 20, 23, the Bible says this. It says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, The teachers of the law, the scribes, and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. That They occupied a position where they had this responsibility to proclaim the words of Moses. And so what Jesus is doing is he says, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. And what he's saying here, when he's saying be careful to do everything they tell you, is he's not saying it's an abomination to use the restroom, all right? That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying, as long as what they're teaching is the words of Scripture, you need to listen and you need to obey what they're proclaiming. And he says, he goes on to say this. He says, um, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do. Why? For they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries, and, and, and I, I can see the little cloud over your head. You know, there's a little cloud over your head right now, and it says, what's a phylactery, okay? I see that cloud, all right? Uh, what's a phylactery? A phylactery is a little box that they would wear sometimes on their arms, and uh, in, in, in this little box, they would have the words of Scripture written into it. And so he says, they, they tie up, uh, they, they um, uh, uh, verse 5, everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide. They want to make sure everybody sees it, okay? They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels of their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi, which means teacher, by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he's in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. And so what he's saying is that, is that these, these Pharisees, they really take pride in, in, in their, uh, how you address them. You know, reverend, pastor, elder, doctor, uh, depending on what tradition, tradition you're from, reverend doctor, okay? Uh, they love the titles. Uh, he goes on to say, but the greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Verse 13. Jesus says this. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. 
You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Uh, I'm not going to read the rest of the chapter right now. I want to kind of summarize it for you if I can. But what happens after this is seven different times Jesus will say, whoa. You know what that means? When, when, when Jesus is saying, whoa, it means what he's about to say after this is really, really bad. Okay? When he says, whoa, it, it was like what you would say in a funeral. He was saying, you know, what he was about to tell them after each of these woes was some things that were really, really bad. And, um, and what Jesus does, and it's real interesting, uh, and, and I'm going to be a little bit all over the place this morning. I apologize. I'm just going to be up front with you about this. When you read through the, the, the book of Matthew, there's this incredible symmetry. I mentioned that earlier. And one of the things that, that Matthew does that some Bible teachers and scholars believe is that, that part of what Matthew is doing is he's presenting Jesus as a new Moses. Okay? And, and what happens is you read through the book of Matthew, there are five major uh, teaching blocks, okay? There are five major teaching blocks. Can anybody tell me what the first teaching block is? Sermon on the Mount. Thanks, Kathy. Sermon on the Mount. Uh, in, in, in That's how many chapters? Do you know off the top of your head? Three. Yeah, five through seven. Verses, chapters five through seven. So what happens is there are five major teaching blocks. By the way, when Moses wrote, what did he write? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Five books, okay? And in these five major uh, teaching blocks, what happens is, is the first one is about three chapters long. By the way, the last one is about three chapters long. That's where we're at right now. And when Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, how does he begin it? He begins it by saying things like, blessed. You remember that? You know, the blessed are the... You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for, for, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed, uh, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who, um, who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what, what, what Jesus does is he says over and over and over again, blessed, 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 blessed. But now, when Jesus is preaching, he's no longer saying blessed, 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 blessed. He's now, he's saying, whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And what he is pronouncing is judgment, 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 judgment. Okay, anybody here feel like it's bad form to point out the uh, shortcomings and the failures of other people? Anybody feel like that's bad form? Okay. Any of you ever talk to one of your children and you point out the shortcomings of your children? There is a context where pointing out the shortcomings of other people is bad form. There is. Okay? Let's acknowledge that. But there also is a time 
where you have to call out unhealthiness and you have to call out unholiness. And if you are a parent, you understand that. When you're a parent and you love your kids and, and, and you take your, your two-year-old and you say, son, don't run out into the street. Don't do that. That when you're calling that out in them, why are you doing it? It's because you love them. It's because you love them and because you care about them. And what Jesus does is he calls out uh, to the Pharisees in particular, but he's doing this in front of all the people, and he's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't know, was that seven times? Sounds like seven to me, all right? And he, and he keeps saying woe to them over and over and over again. And then finally in verse 37 he says this. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together. As a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And what we see here with Jesus is, yeah, he's calling out the sin of these men. But he's doing it with the heart of a pastor. He's doing it with the heart of a shepherd. He's doing it with the heart of a spiritual father. Are you with me on this? Really important. Okay, just a couple of observations. A couple of observations I want to make with you. First of all, this is what I want to tell you. This text isn't just informative for us, of what happened with Jesus and the Pharisees 2,000 years ago. Okay? It's not. It's not. You know, one of the things we talked about when we've been going through Matthew is I've been telling you this. I've been saying there are three contexts. Okay? There's three contexts here. And we need to understand that there's not one context. There are three contexts. Because if we don't understand the three contexts, we won't understand the point of the text. And so we have one context over here. We have one context over here. It's the context of Jesus, in this case, with the Pharisees, with his disciples, and with the people of Jerusalem. There's that context. And what Jesus is doing is he's speaking to the Pharisees about what's toxic in their spirituality, what's destructive in their spirituality, what is destructive and toxic in the way they do religion, in the way they do church. But there's more than that. There's another context. And this other context is Matthew. Uh, Matthew wrote the book of Matthew. Uh, Can we agree to that? He wrote the book of Matthew, and he wrote it for people. He didn't just read, you know, he didn't write it and then just kind of, you know, put it away. It's not like writing a journal where you write it and you really don't want anybody else to read it. It's not like that. No, he actually wrote the book of Matthew for people to read. So Matthew had people that he was concerned about, that he loved, people that he wanted to know the story of Jesus, people that he wanted who, um, that as they understood the story of Jesus, that their lives would be changed by that story. And so he had a a concern for these early Christians uh, shortly after uh, the, the life of Jesus. But there's a third context. There's a third context to Matthew. And that context is the context of you. It's your context. It's my context. See, the book of Matthew 
was written, yeah, it was written for those first generation early Christians. But it was also written for you and for me. Matthew included this for a very specific reason. He wasn't just telling us the problem that Jesus had with the Pharisees then. He was speaking to what can happen. He was speaking to what he was concerned about with first century Christians. That what he wanted is he didn't want those early church leaders and the early church to become like the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day. He didn't want them to follow the path of the Pharisees. And he didn't want those early Christians to follow that path of, of, of a toxic way of doing spirituality, a toxic way of doing church, a toxic way of doing religion. God has a concern not just for those early Christians, but he has a concern for you, and he has a concern for me. So what God wants for us is he wants us to do church in a way that's maybe very, very different from the way we've done it in the past. That past may be when we were growing up. That past may be last week. That past may be just when you were walking in the church. That what God wants for you and what God wants for me is he doesn't want us to have the toxic religion of the Pharisees. He wants us to have a very, very uh, rich way of relating with him. And he wants us to have a very rich way of how we live out our spirituality and relationship with one, one another. Okay? I don't know if this is making sense to you. It makes perfect sense to me. So this text isn't just informative for us about what happened then. It's instructive for how God wants us to live now. It isn't just a record for us of what was wrong with the Jewish religious leaders then. It's a warning of what can go wrong with every Christian leader and every Christian and how we practice our spirituality today. Legalism, spiritual blindness, and hypocrisy were not just the sins of the Pharisees way back then. They are the sins of Buddhism. They are the sins of Islam. They are the sins of Judaism. They are the sins of Sikhism. They are the sins of every major religion. They are the sins of many of us who call ourselves Christians. See, when, when religion is all about the rules, when religion is all, when church is all about the rules and trying to make ourselves measure up with God, then we've got it all wrong. Christianity is about something very, very different. It's not about all the rules, and I'm not saying there aren't important rules for us to live by, but it's all about the grace. It's not about following the rules. It's more about following Jesus. And and, and living in relationship with him in a way that's very, very rich. At its root, bad religion doesn't practice what it teaches. Uh, you know, when, when you look through the first 12 verses here, and when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, he says to, he says to the, you know, he's speaking to the crowds, he's speaking to his disciples, he's speaking to the Pharisees, and while speaking to the crowds and the disciples, he says to them, do what they tell you to do, but do not practice what they preach. Why? Uh, because they don't practice what they preach. See, toxic religion, toxic religion, bad religion, doesn't practice what it teaches. 
bad religion, toxic religion, places heavy loads on other people. But it doesn't lift a finger to help. That's what the Pharisees did. Is, is verse 4, they, they would tie up a heavy, cumbersome load and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves were not willing to lift a finger to move it. By the way, when we look at what the Pharisees were doing and we think about what Jesus did, it's very, very different. See, what they, the Pharisees were doing is they were putting heavy loads on other people. But what does Jesus do in Matthew chapter 11? Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says something very differently because what Jesus says, he says, says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He doesn't say I'll give you a burden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? Because I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. See, talking... Toxic religion puts a very, very heavy load on you and on me. Uh, Bad religion, it it doesn't practice what it teaches. It places heavy loads on others, but it doesn't lift a finger to help them. It practices spirituality to be seen and honored by others. Everything they do, verse 5, everything they do is done for people to see. You know, everything that they wear, the, the, the titles that they go by, it's all about, it's more, they are more concerned with how others honor them than how they honor God. And ultimately, it's, it's self-seeking, uh, self-serving, and proud. That's what toxic religion is. And what God wants for you and what God wants for me and what God wants for Solana Valley Church is something very, very different. Real quick, I just want to hit a, 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 a few things here, some general observations. First of all, seven different times Jesus says to the teachers and the Pharisees of the law, whoa. Seven different times he says, whoa. Six different times he calls them hypocrites. Five different times he calls them blind. Then he calls them snakes. And he calls them vipers. Now, folks, if I were, you know, a lot of us would think that calling people names is bad form. Don't you? I mean, I mean let's admit it. I mean, if I went out and I was saying, you know, you're a bunch of snakes and vipers, you know, probably I would probably kind of get turned off by that, all right? Um, but what Jesus is doing here is not self-righteous, uh, and it's not without love. That what Jesus is doing is he's trying to, and, 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 and finally what Jesus does is, is he warns them, he warns them that if, there's, that if they don't repent, there's no, if they continue to practice religion as they do, that they will not escape uh, uh, the condemnation of hell. Verse 33, it says, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? At this point, what Jesus is trying to get them to see is that, that, folks, you are at that point that if you don't repent and turn right now, the direction you're headed in is destruction, eternal separation from God. And, and so what Jesus is doing is he's trying to elicit a response from them. In, 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 when you read through Matthew chapter 23, there are seven different woes. The first woe is that, that the, the, the religious leaders, they rejected the kingdom of heaven for themselves while also shutting out other people. 
The second woe is they were, they, they were diligently making disciples of hell instead of making disciples of the kingdom. They were, were bringing in more and more proselytes, but they were making them sons of hell. Number three, they were denying uh, the binding nature of oaths, and they had upside-down values. They were saying things like, oh, if you worship by the temple, or excuse me, if you, if you make an oath by the temple, it's no big deal. But if you make an oath by the gold that's in the temple, you better keep it. They had upside-down values. They, 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 they had a higher value. They valued gold more than the temple that sanctified the gold. gold. And they valued the temple more than they valued God who filled the temple. And so what uh, they, they had upside-down values. Uh, number four, they were mi- majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. They were denying, that, it's real interesting, is if you go down uh, in verse, uh, where is it at? Uh, verse 23, Woe to you teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. Okay, well, they were very careful to go into their kitchen and tithe their herbs, their garden herbs. They were very careful to do that. But, but they, they were very careful about tithing those things while at the same time, they were, uh, he says, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, things like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now, folks, this is really important. This is really important. We are so divided in our nation today over politics. We are so divided over our politics. And people, and I want you to get this one. This is really important for us in, in 21st century North American context. If the way we are practicing our faith in how we do politics is denying justice and denying mercy to the people who need it most, then we have to, we we need to consider which is more important, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of man. If we are more concerned, if the way that we practice our religion, if the way we practice our spirituality, if the way we practice our faith poisons our politics so that we deny mercy and we deny justice for people who need it most, we're going to have to make up our mind. Who are we going to listen to? Are we going to listen to talk radio, whatever your talk radio station is? I don't care if it's coming from the right or the left. Or are you going to listen to Jesus? Because when you choose to listen to Jesus, you're going to be out of step with the world around you. Sometimes you're going to be out of step with the Republicans. And sometimes you're going to be out of step with the Democrats. But we better be in step with Jesus. And and I'm just going to, I really believe This is something that we have to consider because Jesus is saying woe to you when you are so concerned about this aspect of your spirituality and you are going to ignore mercy and you are going to ignore justice and you are going to ignore faithfulness. That's not okay. And what Jesus says is you blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. By the way, real quickly here, this is just a little bit of trivia. You should chuckle when you read that. 
You should. You should chuckle when you read that. Uh, you know, the book of Matthew was, was written in Greek. I, I think most of you know that, okay? But this sermon by Jesus was probably first given in Aramaic. And what that means is, is that anybody here study Aramaic? Oh, okay. Me neither, all right? But I read people who have, all right? But, but, but what Jesus says is, you guys, you, 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 you strain out a galma, and you swallow a gambler. Galma, gambler. You're like, okay. But that's the difference between gnat and camel in Aramaic. I, I honestly think that Jesus is using a little bit of sarcasm, okay? And I think he's using a little bit of humor. And so, yeah, Jesus' words here are pretty tough, but it's not without love. And it's not without concern for the people he's addressing. Uh, there, there's a couple more woes. Woes five and six focus. Uh, they, they were the the Pharisees were focused on outward purity and appearance, while their hearts were filled with greed, self indulgence, hypocrisy, and lawlessness. And what he does is he talks about you know it, you know some of you you're like a cup on the outside you you've, you've cleaned it you polished it everything but on the inside it's filled with disgusting filth. You're like a whitewashed tombstone. The practice was in, in, in the uh, season of the pilgrimage that they would go out and they would paint the tombs white or, you know, they would replaster them, make them look really, really nice. So on the pilgrimage, you would not brush up against them, make yourself ceremonially impure when you would, would, would worship. And he said, a lot of you guys, you're just like that. You look good on the outside, you're all clean, whitewashed, but on the inside, you're full of death. And then finally... Uh, the last woe, they honored the prophets of the past while plotting to kill the Messiah. They would build all these monuments to the prophets, saying, if we had lived back then, we wouldn't have done what they did. And they did worse than what they did. Yeah, they said, if we had lived back in the time of the prophets, we wouldn't have stoned them, we wouldn't have killed them, we wouldn't have done all that. And they'd build these monuments. Meanwhile, they killed the Messiah. And sometimes we can look at another generation and we, we, we say, well, I would never do that. I would never slay the Native American. I wouldn't do that. Or we can say, I would never own a slave. Or we can say all these things that we wouldn't do. And if we're not careful, we begin to, to believe what we're selling ourselves, that somehow we are more righteous than previous generations. And if we're not careful, we begin to sell ourselves that we really are as good as we think we are. All right, let's talk about what to do with all of this. Uh, at the heart of the Pharisees' failure was their legalism, their hypocrisy, and their blindness. Uh, folks, they didn't think they were hypocrites. They didn't think they were hypocrites. See, they didn't think they were hypocrites. Sometimes we look at the Pharisees and it's so easy to turn them into enemies. Sometimes when I read the Gospels, I don't see myself as being Jesus because Jesus is, uh, well, he's Jesus, okay? When I read the Gospels, I don't see myself as being Jesus. And when I read the Gospels, I don't see myself as being, you know, the tax collector, the prostitute, or the sinner, you know? I see myself as being one of the disciples. Maybe Peter. 
He had a big mouth. <laughs> yeah, you know. Uh, uh, sometimes he was talking when he should have been listening. Okay, yeah, well, I can relate to that. And, 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 but, you know, I, but I'm not going to relate myself to one of the Pharisees. But Matthew fully intended when he was writing to the early church Christian leaders of his day, he intended them to think about, am I becoming like a Pharisee in the way I lead the church? And when Matthew was writing the early church, he fully intended for those early readers to examine their own lives, am I becoming in my practices like the Pharisees? And folks, we need to think about and relate ourselves with the Pharisee here. Because if you don't think you're a hypocrite, and if you don't think you're legalistic, and if you don't think you're blind, you're never going to address if you really are. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Um, At the heart of the Pharisees' failure was their legalism, their hypocrisy, and their blindness. They were blind to God, blind to healthy spirituality, and blind to their own faults, as much as they were hypocrites in their practices. My daughter likes to say it this way. She talks about what she calls, I think, hopefully I'll get this right, Faith, it's self-serving bias. Is that it? Okay. My daughter talks about what's called self-serving bias. I talk about it a little bit differently. I have a tendency to look at myself through the lens of my good intentions. You understand what I'm saying here? I think that because my intentions are good, the way you experience me is good. But the way you experience me may be very, very different from what I think about myself. So as a young man... And we were doing these little personality tests. One of the staff girls that I worked with when I was on staff at Campus Crusade for Christ, we were going through these tests, and we were doing these personality tests. And one of the things it said about me in the test was that I am forceful, and sometimes I can be a bulldozer. And when I read that about myself with a group, I said to myself, I don't think I'm very forceful. She did what Doreen did. She laughed. And all of a sudden I realized, you're totally out of touch with how you come across to other people. You're looking at yourself through the lens of your good intentions, your self-serving bias, instead of looking at yourself about how do other people experience you when things are tough and difficult. Um, We've got to consider maybe sometimes we can be like the Pharisees. Four things here. Number one, we must humbly, wisely recognize that legalism and hypocrisy is not just their problem, but it's our problem. It's woven into the fabric of our fallen, broken humanity. Uh, Okay, number two, we need to humbly ask God to search us, to know our hearts, to test us, to know our anxious thoughts, and to point out any offensive way in us. I don't know when the last time you asked God and you sat down and you said, God, please examine me. I don't know when the last time you did that was. I did it this morning because I knew I was talking about it. <laughs> but if you, don't remember, if you don't remember the last time you did that with God, it's probably time to do it right now. You know who really gets this really, really well? People in recovery. They do. They understand this one. But, but the Bible says this 
David said, Psalm 139, he understood that just because he had good intentions didn't mean he had a good heart. And so what did David pray? What did David, this is Scripture. David was writing Scripture when he wrote these words. He said, search me, God. Know my heart. Why? Because he needed God to search him, to know his heart. By the way, David had a heart after God. And if he needed God to search him and know his heart, then you and I do too. He said, search me, God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, people in recovery, they get this. They understand, they understand this better than a, a, a lot of us. They understand the, the need and necessity for a fearless moral inventory of their lives. And they understand the need to do this, not just on the front end of their recovery, but as a continuing process in their recovery. Folks, Jesus is in the recovery business, and there's not a single person in here who doesn't need recovery. If you're not addicted to alcohol or drugs or sex or gambling or, I don't know, whatever it is, you know, if you're not work, whatever, you know, all of us are addicted to sin. That's what the Bible says. We're all sinners. God's in the recovery business. Uh, okay, number three, we, we need to humble ourselves, repent when we see any kind of spiritual blindness, legalism, and hypocrisy in our lives. First John, I was reading this this week. I was reading in, through First John and, and some other stuff. But in First in, in John, John writes this. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You hear that? If we claim to be without sin, I don't have a problem with hypocrisy. I don't have a problem with legalism. I'm not spiritually blind. I don't struggle with that. If if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Uh, Finally, number four, we need to humble ourselves and assume the role and position of servant and how we live out our faith and relationships. You know, what Jesus says in in verses 11 and 12, he says, the greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's what really healthy spirituality looks like. Okay? It looks like being a servant. It looks like, um, it looks like Humbling yourselves. That's what it looks like. Let's pray. Father, today we ask you to search us. We ask you to search our hearts. We ask you to give us the courage, the wisdom, the humility we need to really come to you, not just formally come to you, not just reading a Bible verse a day or a chapter a day, not just, you know, saying a prayer before a meal, but not just saying a prayer to begin our day or to end our day. What we want to do is we want to come to really come to you and we want to really humble ourselves before you. And we want to invite you to search us. God, show us any anxious thoughts. Show us if there's any hurtful way in us and lead us in the everlasting way. Help us to walk in humility and help us to, to serve one another. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
Hello, everyone. Right now, we have the honor and privilege of worshiping God with our tithes and offerings. Uh, Matthew 6.21 tells us, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our giving is a very important part of our worship to the Lord. In light of what Christ has done for us, why we not want to give him our best? When we give back to, the, to God, we, appreciate our, we express our appreciation to him for all the ways he has blessed us. We're saying, God, we're grateful for all you've done in our lives, and we love you. 